0: Alright, um, you know what a Sunday means. It means what it's always meant since the beginning of time. It was time for yet another episode of the long series, The Lock to All Mythologies. Currently, we're focusing on Mansfield Park. Oh, and I probably did... I'm bad at this introduction. This is your host, Jane Allred, or, you know, if you're listening to this, you already know who I am, let's be honest. So, we got a lot of exciting stuff for you today. Um, we're not quite getting into it, but we're getting to the build-up of the harp and... You know your girl loves harps. Um, So let's get into it. Mansfield Park, Chapter 5, by Jane Austen, narrated by Jane Allred. Um, This is an audiobook recording for a podcast. Um, Copyrights. Can't say we didn't. Um, Like and subscribe. Okay, so, yeah, chapter five. The young people were pleased with each other from the first. Um, Yeah, you know who the young people are. On each side, there was much to attract, and their acquaintance soon promised as early an intimacy as good manners would warrant. Miss Crawford's beauty did her no disservice with Miss Bertram's, they were too handsome themselves to dislike any women, woman for being so too, and were almost as charmed as their brothers with her lively dark eye, clear brown complexion, and general prettiness. Had she been tall, for form, full-formed, and fair? It might have been more of a trial, but as it was, there could be no comparison and she was meant to allow be a sweet, pretty girl while they were the finest young women in the country. Um, damn. I would always imagine her as tall. Um, I guess she's not. Anyway, let me know in the comments some of your Mary Crawford fan art. <laughs> I, I need to do a Google for that. Maybe that will be a bonus episode, video episode, video podcast. Is that what they call it? Where I look at Tumblr posts of (laughs) Crawford (laughs) slash fiction. This is a niche, which probably I'm too interested in. Alright, enough nonsense. Um, her brother was not handsome. <laughs> no, when they first saw me, was absolutely plain, black and plain. Um, plain black and plain. So, I don't know what black is doing there. Let me know in the comments. Anyway, but he still was. But he was. The... But still, he was the gentleman with a pleasing address. The second meeting proved him not so very plain. He was plain, to be sure, but then he had so much countenance, and his teeth were so good, and he was so well made, that one soon forgot he was plain. And after a third interview, after dining in company with him at the parsonage, he was no longer allowed to be called so by anybody. <laughs> um, you know, he is boring, isn't he? He's only entertaining in relation to others. He is boring. Plain. Plain. Plain Henry. Um, anyway, to go on. He was, in fact, the most agreeable young man the sisters had ever known, and they were equally delighted with him. Miss um, Bertram's engagement made him equity, the pro- made him in equity the property of Julia, of which Julia was fully aware. and before he had been at Mansfield a week, she was quite ready to be fallen in love with. Oh yeah, <laughs> good turn of phrase. Not not ready to be to fall in love to be fallen in love with it's the majority of my life. Um yeah, interesting paragraph. Oh. <laughs> the word plane appears a lot as you may have noticed. oh boy anyway Okay. Maria's notions on the subject were more confused and indistinct. She did not want to see or understand. There could be no harm in her liking an agreeable man. Everybody knew her situation. Mr. Crawford must take care of himself. Mr. Crawford did not mean to be in any danger. The Miss Bertrams were worth pleasing and were ready to be pleased. And he began with no object but of making them like him. He did not want them to die of love, but with sense and temper, which ought to have made him judge and feel better, he allowed himself great latitude on such points. "'And I give Miss Bertrams exceedingly, sister,' said he, as he returned from attending them to their carriage after the said dinner visit. "'They are elegant. They are very elegant, agreeable girls.' so they are indeed i am delighted to hear you say it but you like julia best oh yes i like julia best but do you really for miss bertram is in general thought the handsomest so i should suppose she has every she has the advantage in every feature and i prefer her countenance but i like julia best miss bertram is certainly the handsomest And I have found her the most agreeable. But I shall always like Julia the best, because you order me. (laughs) I shall not talk to you, Henry, but I know you will like her best at last. Did I not tell you I like her best at first? And besides, Miss Bertram is engaged. Remember that, my dear brother, her choice is made. Yes, and I like her better, the better for it. An engaged woman is always more agreeable than a disengaged. She is satisfied with herself. Her cares are over and she feels that she may exert all her powers of pleasing without suspicion. All is safe with the lady engaged. No harm can be done. Why, as to that, Mr. Rushworth is a very good sort of young man and is a great match for her. But Miss Bertram does not care three... Okay, so, I think I got lost of the voices. So, the person who said that last line was, um, uh, Mary. Now our daunted to boring Henry. But Miss Bertram does not care three straws for him. That is your opinion of your intimate friend. I do not subscribe to it. I am sure Miss Bertram is very much attached to Mr. Rushworth. I could see it in her eyes when he was mentioned. I think twelve all myths, Bertrand, to suppose she would ever give her hand without her heart. And here's another weird thing with the dialogue. We are now shifting to a conversation between Mary, Mary Crawford, and Mrs. Grant, their older sister. Um, so it starts with Mrs. Grant. Mary, how shall we manage him? We must leave him to himself, I believe. Talking does no good. He'll be taken in at last. But I would not have him taken in. I would not have him duped. I would have it all fair and honorable. Oh dear, let him stand his chance and be taken in. It will do just as well. Everybody is taken in at some period or other. Not always in in marriage, dear Mary. In marriage especially, with all due respect who such are the present company as chance to be married, my dear Mrs. Grant, there's not one in a hundred of either sex who is not taken in when they marry. Look where I will. I see that it is so. I feel that it must be so. When I consider that is, of all transactions, the one in which people mo- expect most from others and are least honest themselves. Ah, you have been in a bad school for matrimony in Hill Street, my poor aunt had certainly little cause to love the state. But however, speaking from my own observation, it is a maneuvering business. I know so many who have married in the full expectation and confidence of some one particular advantage in the connection or accomplishment or good quality in the person who have found themselves entirely deceived. I am obliged to put up with exactly the reverse. What is this but a taken? My dear child, there must be a little imagination here. I beg your pardon, but I cannot quite believe you. Depend on it. You see but half. You see the evil, but you do not see the consolation. There will be little rubs and disappointments everywhere, and we are all apt to expect too much. But then, if one scheme of happiness fails, human nature turns another. If the first calculation is wrong, we make a second better. We find comfort somewhere. And these evil-minded observers, dearest Mary, who make much of a little, are more taking in and deceived than parties. the parties themselves. How's that for compact? All right, Mary's response. Well done, sister. I honor your esprit du corps. I think that's how you say the French. Um, Mary doesn't say that, of course. I'm sure she said it great. She's lovely and beautiful. Um, anyway, she continues. When I am a wife, I mean to be just as staunch myself, and I wish my friends in general would be so too. It would save me a many a heartache. You are as bad as your brother, Mary, but we will cure you both. Mansfield shall cure you both, and without any taking in. Stay with us, and we will cure you. Yes, Mansfield will cure cure them indeed. The Crawfords, without wanting to be cured, were very willing to stay. Mary was satisfied with the parsonage as a present home, and Henry equally ready to lengthen his visit. He had come, intended to spend only a few days with them, but Mansfield Park promised well, and there was nothing to call him elsewhere. It delighted Mrs. Grant to keep them both with her, and Dr. Grant was exceedingly well contented to have it so. A talking, pretty young woman like Miss Crawford is always pleasant society to an indolent, stay-at-home man." (laughs) Getting that tattooed on my ass. <laughs> and Mr. Crawford's, being his guest, was an excuse for drinking claret every day. Ooh, I do not look at what claret was. Let's look it up. Oh, it's a wine. A wine from Bordeaux. And it's claret then, it's because it's French. Well, no, this is a British pronunciation. And dictionary.com is telling me it's "rat." like I said it. Okay. (coughs) We'll edit a cough out. We're not editing the cough out. Alright, to go on. The Miss Bertram's admiration of Mr. Crawford was more rapturous than anything which Miss Crawford's habits made her likely to feel. She acknowledged, however, that the Mr. Bertrams were very fine young men, that two such young men were not often seen together, even in London, and that their manners, particularly those of the eldest, were very good. He had been much in London, and had more liveliness and gallantry than Edmund, and must therefore be preferred. And indeed, his being the eldest was another strong claim. She had felt an early presentiment that she should like the eldest the best. She knew it was her way. Yeah, this girl is trying to convince herself she's straight. Um. All right, to go on, Tom Bertram must have been thought pleasant, indeed. At any rate, he was the sort of young man to be generally liked. His agreeableness was of the kind to be oftener found agreeable than some endowments of a higher stamp, for he had easy manners, excellent spirits, a large acquaintance, and a great deal to say. And the reversion of Mansfield Park, and a baronetcy, did no harm to all this. It's just so funny how this departs from the 1999 movie, where he's just the sad, tortured... just the sad, tortured slave master... (laughs) Anyway, Miss Crawford soon felt that he and his situation might do. She looked at her with due consideration, and found almost everything. She looked about her with due consideration, and found almost everything in his favor. A park, a real park, five miles round. A spacious, modern-built house, so well-placed and well-screened, as to deserve to be in a collection of engravings of gentlemen's seats in the kingdom, and wanting only to be completely new-furnished, pleasant sisters, a quiet mother, and an agreeable man himself, with the advantage of being tied up for much gaming at present by a promise to his father, and of being Sir Thomas hereafter. <laughs> she just doesn't... <laughs> She's not interested in him. It's great. Um, it might do very well. She believes she could should accept him. And she began accordingly accordingly to interest herself a little about the horse which he had to run at the Bertram Hington races. Um you can tell that was made up. Um, there's a dash here, which is usually, Jane Austen, you know, covering up a name she was thinking, or just being like, you supply the name. If it starts with a B, maybe there's something we should know. I don't know. It's the Bertring 10. That's how we should treat the Dashes. Just make up an English-sounding name. All right. The race, These races were to calm away not long after their acquaintance began. And as it appeared that the family did not... From his usual goings-on expect him back for many weeks it would bring his passion to an early proof much was said on his side to induce her to attend the races and schemes were made for a very large party to them with all the eagerness of inclination but it would only do to be talked of The Crawfords, without wanting to be cured, were very willing to stay. Mary was satisfied with the parsonage as a present home, and Henry equally ready to lengthen his visit. He had come, intended to spend only a few days with them, but Mansfield Park promised well, and there was nothing to call him elsewhere. It delighted Mrs. Grant to keep them both with her and Dr. Grant was exceedingly well contented to have it so. A talking, pretty young woman like Miss Crawford is always pleasant society to an indolent stay-at-home man. (laughs) Getting that tattooed on my ass. (laughs) And Mr. Crawford's, being his guest, was an excuse for drinking claret every day. Ooh, I do not look at what claret was. Let's look it up. Oh, it's a wine. A line from Bordeaux and it's Claire, then it's because it's French. Well, no, this is a British pronunciation, And dictionary.com is telling me it's Claire Rat, like I said it. Okay. <coughs> we'll edit a cough out. We're not editing the cough out. All right, to go on. <coughs> The Miss Bertram's admiration of Mr. Crawford was more rapturous than anything which Miss Crawford's habits made her likely to feel. She acknowledged, however, that the Mr. Bertrams were very fine young men, that two such young men were not often seen together, even in London, and that their manners, particularly those of the eldest, were very good. He had been much in London and had more liveliness and gallantry than Edmund, and must therefore be preferred. And indeed, his being the eldest was another strong claim. She had felt an early presentiment that she should like the eldest the best. She knew it was her way. Yeah, this girl is trying to convince herself she's straight. Um, all right, to go on. Tom Bertram must have been thought pleasant. Indeed, at any rate, he was the sort of young man to be generally liked. His agreeableness was of the kind to be oftener found agreeable than some endowments of a higher stamp, for he had easy manners, excellent spirits, a large acquaintance, and a great deal to say. And the reversion of Mansfield Park, and a baronetcy, did no harm to all this. It's just so funny how this departs from the 1999 movie where he's just the sad, tortured, just the sad, tortured slave master. (laughs) Anyway, Miss Crawford soon felt that he and his situation might do. She looked at her with due consideration and found almost everything she looked about her with due consideration, and found almost everything in his favor. A park, a real park, five miles round, a spacious, modern-built house, so well-placed and well-screened as to deserve to be any collection of engravings of gentlemen's seats in the kingdom, and wanting only to be completely new-furnished. Pleasant sisters, a quiet mother, and an agreeable man himself, with the advantage of being tied up from much gaming at present by a promise to his father and of being Sir Thomas hereafter. (laughs) She just doesn't... (laughs) She's not interested in him. It's great. Um, It might do very well. She believes she should accept him. And she began accordingly accordingly to interest herself a little about the horse, which he had to run... At the Bertram Hington races. Um, you can tell that was made up. Um, there's a dash here, which is usually Jane Austen, you know, covering up a name she was thinking, or just being like, you supply the name. If it starts with a B, maybe there's something we should know. I don't know. It's the Bertram Hinton. That's how we should treat the dashes, just make up an English-sounding name. Alright, the race, uh, these races were to calm away not long after their acquaintance began, and as it appeared that the family did not, from his usual goings-on, expect him back for many weeks, it would bring his passion to an early proof. Much was said on his side to induce her to attend the races, and schemes were made for a very large party to them, with all the eagerness of inclination, but it would only do to be talked of. And what of Fanny? Sorry. And Fanny, what was she doing and thinking all this while? And what was her opinion of the newcomers? Few young ladies of 18 could be less called on to speak their opinion than Fanny. In a quiet way, very little attended to, she paid her tribute of admiration to Miss Crawford's beauty. But as she still considered to think Mr. Crawford very plain, in spite of her two cousins having repeatedly proved the contrary, she never mentioned him. (laughs) All right. So I, I think in the last episode, I said she was tragically heterosexual. And man, rereading this, I remember, I just really take that back. Her story is tragically heterosexual. But, I mean, I did a quick Google and Tumblr agrees. There, There's some vibes between Mary Crawford and Fanny. And I think we're going to talk about that next week because we're going to get to the heart. <laughs> Be so excited to the heart. I found a good scholarly article that, well... I skimmed it. It seemed pretty interesting about the lesbian subplot. Um, so, yeah, we're shipping them. We stand. And anyway, we're going to see here now Miss Crawford, you know, how Fanny's interesting to her. And I mean, it's just a classic dynamic, you know, the shy, um, modest, sincere girl, and like the confident, outspoken, bitchy, like um gorgeous <laughs> woman. It's a good dynamic. I'm here for it. We stand. Anyway the notice, which she excited herself, this is Fanny, was to this effect. I begin now to understand you all, except Miss Price, said Miss Crawford, as she was walking with the mister Bertram's Pray, is she out or is she not? I am puzzled. She dined at the parsonage with the rest of you, which seemed like being out. And yet she says so little that I can hardly suppose she is. Edmund, to whom this was chiefly addressed, replied, Um, I believe I know what you mean, but I will not undertake to answer the question. My cousin is grown up, she has the age and sense of a woman, but the out and not outs are beyond me. And yet, in general, nothing can be more easily ascertained. The distinction is so broad, manners as well as appearance are, generally speaking, so totally different. Till now, I could not have supposed it possible to be mistaken as to a girl's being out or not. The girl, not out, has always the same sort of dress, has the same sort of dress, a clothes bonnet, for example, looks very demure and never says a word. You may smile, but it is so, I assure you, and except that it is sometimes carried a little too far, it is all very proper. Girls should be quiet and modest the most objectionable part the the most objectionable part is that the alterations of manners on being introduced in company is frequently too sudden they sometimes pass in such very little time from reserve to the quite opposite to confidence that is the faulty part of the present system One does not like to see a girl of 18 or 19 so immediately up to everything. And perhaps, when one has seen her hardly able to speak the year before, Mr. Bertram, I dare say you have sometimes met with such changes. I believe I have, but this is hardly fair. I see what you're at. You are quizzing me. And Miss Anderson, I think the modern one language would be, you are quizzing me about Miss Anderson. So, that's pretty interesting. Maybe fun to, like, do a deep dive into that etymology there. Um, but, despite this being me, we aren't doing that. Um, okay, so Mary's response. No, indeed. Miss Anderson? I did not know who or what you mean. I am quite in the dark. But... I will quiz you with a great deal of pleasure, if you'll tell me what about. Ah, you carried off very well, but I cannot be quite so far imposed on. You must have had Miss Anderson in your eye, in describing an altered young lady. You paint too accurately for mistake. It was exactly so. The Andersons of Baker Street. We were speaking of them the other day, you know, Edmund. You have heard me mention Charles Anderson. The circumstance was precisely as this lady has represented it. When Anderson first introduced me to his family about two years ago, his sister was not out, and I could not get her to speak to me. I sat there an hour one morning waiting for Anderson, with only her and a little girl or two in the room, the governess being sick or run away, and the mother in and out every moment with letters of business and I could hardly get a word or look from the young lady. Nothing like a civil answer. She screwed up her mouth and turned up from me with such an air. I did not see her again for a twelvemonth. month She was then out. I met her at Mrs. Halford's and did not recollect her. She came up to me claimed me as an acquaintance, stared me out of countenance, and talked and laughed till I did not know which way to look. I felt that I must be the jest of the room at the time, and Miss Crawford in his plane has heard the story. <laughs> and a very pretty story it is, and with more truth by- in it, I dare say, than does credit to Miss Anderson. <laughs> it is a good story. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> it's good. Um, Alright, anyway, to continue, Miss Miss Crawford... It is too common a fault. Mothers certainly have not yet got quite the right of managing their daughters. I do not know where the air lies. I do not pretend to set people right. But I do see that they are often wrong. Iconic. (sighs) Alright, Mr. Bertram's response. Those who are showing the world what female manners should be said Mr. Bertram gallantly, are doing a great deal to set them right. The air is plain enough, said a less courteous Edmund. Such girls are ill-brought up. They are, they are given wrong notions from the beginning. They are always acting up. They are always acting upon motives of vanity, and there is no real modesty in their behavior before they appear in public, than afterwards. I do not know, replied Miss Crawford hesitatingly. Yes, I cannot agree with you there. It is certainly the modestest part of the business. It is much worse to have girls not out, give themselves the same airs, and take the same liberties as if they were. Which I have seen done. That is worse than anything. Quite disgusting. Yes, that is very inconvenient indeed, said Mr. Bertram. It leads one astray. One does not know what to do. The clothes bonnet and demure air you describe so well. And nothing was ever juster. Tell tell one what is expected. But I got into a dreadful scrape last year from the want of them. I went down to Ramsgate for a week with a friend last September. Just after my return from the West Indies. My friend Snide. You have heard me speak of Snide, Edmund? His father and mother and sisters were there, all new to me. When we reached Albion Place, they were out. We went after them and found them on the pier. Mrs. and the two Miss Snides, with others of their acquaintance. I made my bow and form, and as Mrs. Snide was surrounded by men, attached myself to one of her daughters, walked by her side all the way home, and made myself as agreeable as I could. The young lady, perfectly easy in her manners, but, and as ready to talk as to listen, I had not a suspicion that I could be doing anything wrong. They looked just the same, both well-dressed, with veils and parasols like other girls. But afterwards, found that I had been giving all my attention to the youngest, who was not out, and had most excessively offended the eldest. Miss Augusta... (laughs) Sorry, this is just too much. (laughs) Miss Augusta ought not to have been noticed for the next six months. And Miss Snyde, I believe, has never forgiven me. I mean, Tom Bertram has such claiming he didn't know that he was having sex with a minor energy. (laughs) It's really amazing. (laughs) All right, anyway, the response from Miss Crawford. That was bad indeed. Poor Miss Snide. Though I have no younger sister, I feel for her. To be neglected before one's time must be very vexatious. But it was entirely the mother's fault. "'Miss Augusta should have been with her governess. "'Such half-and-half doings never prosper. "'But now I must be satisfied about Miss Price. "'Does she go to balls? "'Does she dine out everywhere, as well as at my sister's?' "'No,' replied Edmund. "'I do not think she has ever been to a ball. "'My mother seldom goes into company herself "'and dines nowhere but with Mrs. Grant.' And Fanny stays at home with her. Oh, then the point is clear. Miss Price is not out. End of chapter five. Um, I like that comment. <laughs> So, Tom Bertram is so boring that I think I just, like, skipped over these, the, at least the second paragraph. Because I'm like, he's just, he's just talking about, <laughs> he talks about the most mundane shit. <laughs> But it's good, I should. This is why I'm doing this, to get into every detail. Anyway, it's... We see the first of Miss Crawford's... Well, we see the returns of the claim of education. And we see Miss Crawford's approach. It's very by-the-book. Um... Cynical, almost. Um... I should have had more complex thoughts about it. Maybe we will return to it. Let me know in the comments. I do love that line, though. I do not pretend to set people right. But I do see they're the, <laughs> often wrong. <laughs> it's like she... Her knowledge is, like, all oh, negative, I guess. So maybe she's not by the book. She just knows things are wrong when she sees it. Very critical. Judgy. A judgy bitch. We have no choice but to stand. Anyway, end of chapter five. Okay, so, Mansfield Park, chapter six, by Jane Austen. This is an audio recording, read by Jane Allred. Like and subscribe. Okay, so Mr. Bertram set off for, what did I say the name was? Birminghamshire, Bertramshire, Birminghamshire. He set off for the races. And Miss Crawford was prepared to find a great chasm in their society. And to miss him decidedly in the meetings which are now becoming also almost daily between the families. Did she really miss him though? And on all their dining together at the park soon after his going, she retook her chosen place near the bottom of the table, fully expecting to feel a most melancholy difference in the change of masters. It would be a very flat business, she was sure. In comparison with his brother, Edmund would have nothing to say. The soup would be sent round in a most spiritless manner, wine drank without any smiles or agreeable trifling. and the venison cut up without supplying one pleasant anecdote of any former haunt or a single entertaining story about my friend such a one. I mean, that is true. Edwin sucks. Um, She must try to find amusement in what was passing at the upper end of the table, and in observing Mr. Rushworth, who is now making his appearance at Mansfield for the first time since the Crawfords' arrival. He had been visiting a friend in the neighboring county, and that friend, having recently had his grounds laid out by an improver, Mister Rushworth, was returned with his head full of the subject, and very eager to be improving his own place in the same way. And though not saying much to the purpose, could not talk of any or oof, though not saying much to the purpose could talk of nothing else. The subject had already been handled in the drawing room. It was revived in the dining parlor. Miss Bertram's attention and opinion was evidently his chief aim. And though her deportment showed rather conscious superiority than any solicitude to oblige him, the mention of Southerton court and the ideas attached to it gave her a feeling of complacency, which prevented her from being very ungracious. (laughs) This book's just full of different varieties of boring men. Okay, so we're going to Mr. Rushworth's speech. I wish you could see Compton, said he. It is a most complete thing. I never saw a place so altered in my life. I told Smith I did not know where I was. The approach now is one of the finest things in the country. You see the house in the most surprising manner. I declare when I got back to Southernton yesterday, it looked like a prison. Quite a dismal prison. Oh for shame cried mrs. Nor- always crying cried mrs. Norris a prison indeed Sutherton Court is the noblest place in the whole in the world it wants improvements ma'am beyond anything I never saw a place that wanted so much improvement in my life and it is so forlorn that I do not know it can be done with it. No wonder that mr. Rushworth said Thinks so at present, said Mrs. Grant to Mr. Norris with a smile. But depend on... Oh, Mrs. Grant to Mrs. Norris with a smile. But depend, on, but depend upon it. Southerton will have every improvement in time which his heart can desire. I must try to do something with it, said Mr. Rushworth. But I do not know what. I hope I shall have a good, some good friend to help me. Um, you know, all those Pride and Prejudice memes about Mr. Collins. I'm just saying, they should all be about Mr. Rushworth, Anyway. Um, your best friend upon such an occasion, said Miss Bertram calmly, would be Mr. Repton, I imagine. This is what I was thinking of. As he has done so well by Smith, I think I had better have him at once. His terms are five guineas a day. Well, and if there were ten, cried Jane, you have a problem. Okay, admit it. Get help. Let me know in the comments if you're listening to this, and we can get you help. Anyway, so Mrs. Norris cried that I am um, sure you need not regard it. The expense need not be any impediment. If I were you, I should not think of the expense. I would have everything done in the best style and made as nice as possible. Such a place as Southerton Court deserves anything that taste and money can do. You have space to work upon there, and grounds that will well reward you. For my own part, if I had anything within the 50th part of the size of Southerton, I should always be planting and improving, for naturally I'm excessively fond of it. It would be too ridiculous for me to attempt anything where I am now with my little half-anchor. It would be quite burlesque. It would be quite a burlesque. But if I had more room, I should take a prodigious delight in improving and planting. We did a vast deal in that way at the parsonage. We made it quite a different place from, when we, it was, woof, from what it was when we first had it. You young ones do not remember much about it, perhaps. But if... So, Dear Sir Thomas were here, he could tell you what improvements we made, and a great deal more would have been done, but for, poor ter- Mrs. N- but for poor Mr. Norse's sad state of health. He could hardly ever get out, poor man, to enjoy anything, and that disheartened me from doing several things that Sir Thomas and I used to talk of. If it had not been for that, we should have carried on the garden wall and made the plantation to shut out the churchyard, just as Dr. Grant has done. We were always doing something as it was. It was only the spring twelve months, before Mr. Norris's death, that we put the apricot against the stable wall, which has now grown such a noble tree, getting to such perfection, sir, addressing herself then to Dr. Grant. The tree thrives well beyond a doubt, madam, replied Dr. Grant. The soil is good. And I never pass it without regretting that the fruit should be li- so little worth the trouble of gathering, sir. It is a moor park. We bought it as a moor park, and it cost us. That is, it was a present from Sir Thomas. But I saw the bill. I knew it cost seven shillings, and was charged as a moor park. You were imposed on, ma'am," replied Doctor Grant. These potatoes have as much flavor of a Moor Park apricot as the fruit from that tree. It is an insipid fruit at the best, but a good apricot is eatable, which none from my garden are. <laughs> Harsh. The truth is, ma'am, said Mrs. Grant, pretending to whisper across the table to Mrs. Norris, that Dr. Grant hardly knows what the natural taste of her apricot is. He has scarcely ever indulged in one. It is so valuable fruit with a little insistence and ours is such a remarkably large fair sort that what the er- what with early tarts and preserves my cook contrives to get them all Mrs. Norris who had begun to redden was appeased and for a little while other subjects took place of the improvements of Southernton Dr. Grant and Mrs. Norris were seldom good friends their acquaintance had begun in dilapidations and their habits were totally dissimilar. <clears throat> After a short interruption, Mr. Rushworth began again. <laughs> it goes on so long. This boring business. I love it. Smith's place is the admiration of all the country. It was a mere nothing before Repton took it in hand. I think I shall have Repton. Mr Rushworth, said Lady Bertram, if I were you I would have a very pretty shrubbery. One likes to get out into shrubbery in fine weather. Mr Rushworth was eager to assure her ladyship of his acquiescence and try to make something complimentary. But between his submission to her tastes, and his all having always intended the same himself, with the superadded objects of professing attention to the comfort of ladies in general, and of insinuating that there was only one whom he was anxious to please, he grew puzzled, and Edmund was glad to put an end to his speech by a proposal of wine. Mr. Rushworth, however, though not usually a great talker, had still more to say on the subject next to his heart. Smith has not much above a hundred acres altogether in his grounds, which is little enough and makes it more surprising that the place can s- could have been so improved now at Southernton, we have a good seven hundred without reckoning the water meadows, so that I think if so much could be done at Compton, we need not spare there have been two or three final trees cut down. That grew too near the house, and it opens the prospect amazingly. Which makes me think that Repton or anybody of the sort, would certainly have the avenue at Southerton down. The avenue that leads from the west front to the top of the hill, you know. Turning to Miss Bertram, particularly as he spoke. But Miss Bertram thought it must be coming to reply. The avenue! Oh, I do not recollect it. I really know very little of Southerton. Fanny, who, thank God, we're going to leave this, it's great. Fanny, who was sitting at the other side of Edmund, exactly opposite Miss Crawford, who had been attentively listening, looked at him and said in a low voice, Cut down an avenue? What a pity! Does it not make you think of Cowper? Ye fallen avenues! Once more I mourn your fate unmerited. He smiled as he answered, I am afraid the avenue stands a bad chance, Fanny. I should like to see Southern Ten before it is cut down, to see the place that it is now, in its sole state. But I do not, do not suppose I shall. Have you never been there? No, you never can. And unluckily, it is out of distance for a ride. I wish we could contrive it. Oh, it does not signify. Whenever I do see it, you will tell me how it has been altered. I collect," said Miss Crawford. "But Southernton is an old place and a place of some grandeur. In any particular style of building, the house was built in Elizabeth's time and is a large, regular brick building, heavy but respectable looking. And has many good rooms. It is ill placed; that stands in one of the lowest parts of the park. In that respect, unfavourable I'm for improvement. All right, my cat's talking to me. We got to make a pause." All right, so to continue Edmund's comments on the house, um, where were we? Yeah, yeah, Madeo, you're right. We were there. So he said about the low spots of the park, um, but he's continuing. But the woods are fine, and there is a stream, which I dare say might be made a good deal of. Mr. Rushworth is quite right, I think, in meaning to give it a modern dress. And I have no doubt that it will all be done extremely well. Miss Crawford listened with submission and said to herself, "He is a well-bred man. He makes the best of it." I do not wish to influence Mister Rushworth. He continued, "But had I had a place new to new fashion, I should not put myself into the hands of an improver." I'd rather have an inferior degree of beauty of my own choice and acquired progressively. I'd rather abide by my own blunders than by his. You wouldn't... Medea, what's up? Okay, we gotta make a cat pause again. Okay, so, Mary Crawford's responding. You would know what you were about, of course, but that will not suit me. I have no eye or ingenuity in such manners. But, as they are before me, and I, had I a place of my own in the country, I should be most thankful to any Mr. Repton who would undertake it. Give me as much beauty as you could for my money. I should never look at it till it was complete. <clears throat> it would be delightful to me to see the progress of it all, said Fanny. "I, you have been brought up to it. It was no part of my education, and the only dose I ever had being administered by not the first favorite in the world, has made me consider improvements in a hand as the greatest of nuisances. Three years ago, the Admiral, my honored uncle, bought a cottage at Twickenham for us all to spend our summers in, and my aunt aunt and I were down to it, went down to it, quite in raptures, but it being excessively pretty, it was soon found necessary to be improved, and for three months, we were all dirt and confusion, without a gravel walk to step on or a bench fit for use. I would have everything as complete as possible in the country shrubberies and flower gardens and rustic seats in New But it must all be done without my care. Henry is different. He loves to be doing. <clears throat> Edmund was very sorry to hear Miss Crawford, whom he was disposed to much admire, speak so freely of her uncle. It did not suit his sense of propriety, and he was silenced, till induced by further smiles and liveliness to put the matter by for the present. I think it offends his sense of propriety because his uncle married his miss or made his mistress move in so soon after aunt's death. That seems about right. Is that so, Dale? Okay, I thought she was gonna yell, but she never does anything. Um. <clears throat> So, Mary Crawford's continuing. Mr. Bertram, said she, I have tidings of my harp at last. I am assured that it is safe at Northampton. And there it has probably been these ten days, in spite of the solemn assurance we have so often received to the contrary. Edmund expressed his pleasure and surprise. The truth is that our inquiries were too direct. We sent a servant, we went ourselves. This will not do 70 miles from London, but this morning we heard of it in the right way. It was seen by some farmer, and he told the miller, and the miller told the butcher, and the butcher's son-in-law went word at the shop. I'm very glad you have heard of it, by whatever means. I hope there will be no further delay. I'm to have it tomorrow. And how do you think it is to be conveyed?" Not by a wagon or cart. Oh, no. Nothing of that kind could be hired in the village. I might as well have asked for porters and a handbarrow. You would find it difficult, I dare say, just now, in the middle of a very late hay harvest, to hire a horse and cart... I was astonished to find what a piece of work was made of it. To want a horse and cart in the country seemed impossible. So I told my maid to speak for one directly. And as I cannot look out of my dressing closet without seeing one farmyard, nor walk in the shrubbery without passing another, I thought it would only—it would be only ask and have—and was rather grieved that I could not give the advantage to all. <laughs> oh. I- Rich witches are the best. Um, guess my surprise when I found that I had been asking the most unreasonable, most impossible thing in the world. Had offended all the farmers, all the laborers, all the hay in the parish. As for Dr. Grant's barrel I believe I had better keep out of his way. And My brother-in-law himself, who is all kindness in general, looked rather black upon me when he found what I had been at. You could not be expected to have thought on the subject before, but when you do think of it, you must see the importance of getting in the grass of getting in the grass. The hire of a cart at any time might not be so easy as you suppose. Our farmers are not in the habit of letting them out. But in harvests it must be quite a- out of their power to spare a horse. I shall understand all your ways in time, but coming down with the true London maxim that everything is to be got with money, I was a little embarrassed at first by the sturdy independence of your country customs. However, I'm to have my heart fetched tomorrow. Henry, who's a good natured himself who is good nature itself, has offered to fetch it in his barouche. Will it not be honourably conveyed? Edmund spoke of the harp as his favorite instrument. It was a good. It's my favorite. Yeah. It, good taste there, Edmund. Good for you. <clears throat> and hoped to be soon. I'm allowed to he- hear her. I mean, maybe he's just posing. He's just posing. Fuck Edmund. Um, Fanny had never heard the harp at all and wished for it very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is a very onic instrument. I'll give it that. Um, I shall be most happy to play to you both, said Miss Crawford, at least as long as you can like to listen. Probably much longer, for I dearly love music myself. And where the natural taste is equal, the player must always be best off, for she is gratified in more ways than one. Now, Mr. Bertram, if you write to your brother, I entreat you to tell him my harp has come. He heard so much of my misery about it. And he may say, if you please, that I shall prepare my most plaintive airs against his return, in comparison to his feelings, as I know his horse will lose. If I write, I will say whatever you wish me, but I do not at present foresee any occasion for writing. No, I dare say, nor, if you are going to be gone for twelve twelvemonth would you ever write him, nor he do you if it could be helped. The occasion would never be foreseen." What strange creatures brothers are, You would not write to each other, but upon the most urgent necessity in the world. If one obliged to take up the pen to say that such a horse is ill, or such a relation dead, it is done in the fewest words possible. You have but one style among you. I know it perfectly. Henry who is in every other respect exactly what a brother should be, who loves me, consults me, confides in me, and will talk to me by the hour. Together, has never yet turned the page in a letter, and very often it is nothing more than, Dear Mary, I am just arrived. Bath seems full, and everything as usual. Yours sincerely. That is the true manly style. That is a complete brother's letter. When they are at a distance from all their family, said Fanny, coloring for William's sake, <laughs> they can write long letters. <laughs> Love her. <laughs> Miss Price has a brother at sea, said Edmund. His excellence as a correspondent makes her think you are too severe upon us. At sea, has she? In the king's service, of course. Fanny would rather have had Edmund tell the story, because she showed sigh at beautiful Miss Crawford. Um, but his determined silence obliged her. To relate her brother's situation. Her voice was animated in speaking of his profession and the foreign stages he had been out on, but she could not mention the number of years that he had been absent without tears in her eyes. Miss Crawford civilly wished him an early promotion. Do you know anything of my cousin's captain, said Edmund? Captain Marshall? You have a large acquaintance in the Navy, I conclude. Among admirals, large enough, but with an air of grandeur. We know very little of the inferior ranks. Post-captains may be very good sort of men, but they do not belong to us. Of various admirals, I could tell you a great deal. Of them and their flags and the gradation of their pay and their bickerings and jealousies. But in general, I can assure you that they are all passed over and all very ill-used. Certainly my home at my uncle's brought me acquainted with a circle of admirals. Of rears and vices, I saw enough. No, do not be suspect to me of a pun I entreat. Um, I don't get that pun. Let me know in the comments. Edmund felt grave and only replied, it is a noble profession. Yes, the profession is well enough under two circumstances. If it make the fortune and there be discretion in spending it. <laughs> in other words... If he steal a bunch of treasure and are good at laundering it. But, in short, it is not a favorite profession of mine. It has never worn an amiable, amiable form to me. Edmund reverted to the heart and was again very happy in the prospect of hearing her play. The subject of improving grounds, meanwhile, was still under consideration among the others. Such a great... Depiction of table talk. (laughs) Says Willie, then there's one subject which never gets dropped. Anyway, and Mrs. Grant could not help addressing her brother that was calling his attention from Miss Julia Bertram. My dear Henry, have you nothing to say? You have been an improver yourself. And from what I hear of Everingham, it may vie with any place in England. Its natural beauties, I am sure, are great. Everingham, as it used to be, was perfect in my estimation, such a happy fall of ground and such timber. What would I not give to see it again? Nothing could be so gratifying to me as to hear your opinion of it, was his answer. But I fear there would be some disappointment. You would not find it equal to your present ideas. In extent, it is a mere nothing. You would be surprised at its insignificance. And as for improvement, there is very little for me to do. Too little. I should have liked to have been busy much longer. You are fond of this sort of thing? Said Julia. I was trying to do flirtatiousness. I don't know. Um, No voices. Excessively. But what with the natural advantages of the ground, which pointed out, even to a very young eye, What little remains to be done, and my own consequent resolutions. I had not been of age three months before Everingham was all that it is now. My plan was laid at Westminster, a little altered, perhaps at Cambridge, and at one and twenty executed. I am inclined to envy Mr. Rushworth for having so much happiness yet before him. I have been a devourer of my own. Those who see quickly will resolve quickly and act quickly, said Julia. You can never want employment. Instead of envying Mr. Rushworth, you should assist him with your opinion. Mrs. Grant, hearing the latter part of the speech, enforced it warmly, persuaded that no judgment could be equal to her brothers. And as Miss Bertram caught at the idea likewise and gave it her full support, declaring that, in her opinion, it was infinitely better to consult with friends and disinterested advisers then immediately to throw the business into the hands of a professional man. Mr. Rushworth was very ready to request the favor of Mr. Crawford's assistance, and Mr. Crawford, after port properly woo, um, <clears throat> depreciating his own abilities, was quite at his service in any way that could be useful. Mr. Rushworth then began to propose Mr. Crawford's doing him the honor of coming over to Southerton and taking a bed there. When Mrs. Norris, as if reading into her two nieces' minds, their little approbation of a plan, which was to take Mr. Crawford away, interposed with an amendment. There can be no doubt of Mr. Crawford's willingness, but why should not more of us go? Why should we not make a little party? Here are many that would be interested in your improvements. My dear Mr. Washworth. And why do I always, with Mrs. Norris, always do that, whatever she says, my dear. I did the wrong information is what I say. saying. Here are many that would be interested in your improvements, my dear Mr. Rushworth. And I can't do it. Here are many that would be interested in your improvements, my dear Mr. Rushworth. There we are. And that would like to hear Mr. Crawford's opinion on the spot. And that might be of some small use to you with their opinions. And for my own part, I've been long wishing to wait upon your good mother again. Nothing but having no horses of my own could have been, made me so remiss. But now I could go and sit a few hours with Mrs. Rushworth while the rest of you walked about unsettled things. And then we could all return to a late dinner here or dine at Southerton, just as might be most agreeable to your mother and have a pleasant drive by moonlight. I dare say Mrs- Mr. Crawford would take my two nieces and me and his barouche And Edmund can go on horseback. You know his... And and Edmund can go on horseback. You know, Sister and Fanny will stay at home with you. Sorry, let me do that. And Edmund can go on horseback, you know, Sister. And Edmund can go on horseback, you know, Sister. And Fanny will stay at home with you. There we are. I can read. Lady Bertram made no objection. (laughs) And Fanny did not say anything. She's not mentioned. Anyway, Lady Bertram made no objection, and everyone concerned in the going, was forward in expressing their ready concurrence. I guess she did. Well, of course she did. excepting Edmund, who heard it all and said nothing. End of chapter six. Alright, that's it! Um, the likes and the subscribes, you know, get that YouTube money, this is YouTube.